When the now-defunct San Onofre nuclear reactors were being rushed into removing years of still-hot nuclear fuel rods from the spent fuel pools and put into ill-conceived storage on the beach next to the Pacific Ocean, that was scary enough. But then when you go to a public forum on the waste removal process and someone who works on site at San Onofre with years of experience reports on a near accident he witnessed and that Edison forgot to mention, and he says, Public safety should be first. And I've been around nuclear for many years. It's not. Behind that gate, it's not. Well, when you hear someone who just risked his entire career to make volatile, if not incendiary, information known, you begin to understand how massive and how hot is the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special report on shocking revelations regarding what's being done with San Onofre's high-level nuclear waste. We'll hear the aforementioned whistleblower, former NRC Chair Gregory Yasko, Public Watchdogs Charles Langley and Nina Babiars, San Onofre Safety's Donna Gilmore, sort of, and even a bit of apologia, stammered out by the shocked, I tell you, shocked, Southern California Edison Chief Nuclear Officer Thomas Palmisano and more honest nuclear information than Omarosa recorded, at least as far as we know. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 14, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off with... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. The 2020 radioactive uh, uh, Tokyo Olympic torch relay is going to start from Fukushima. Nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's special feature on San Onofre in just a moment. But first, yes, it is finally here, my book. Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It will be available for purchase on Amazon as of Thursday, August 16. It's a nuclear memoir, my life through a nuclear lens that includes my experience stuck in a house one mile from Three Mile Island when the nuclear meltdown happened in 1979, a look back to the 1950s from Duck and Cover to Disney's Our Friend the Atom, up through years of post-traumatic stress from Three Mile Island until we reach Fukushima 
and the story of how Nuclear Hot Seat got started and grew, as well as my current activism. It's also a snarky primer on what the nuclear industry gets away with, how it gets away with it, and some things we can do about it. Oh, and it's funny, too, with plenty of Broadway and Hollywood anecdotes from my time in the entertainment industry. If you buy the book on its launch day, Thursday, August 18, that's going to help me a lot because our numbers will drive up the book's visibility on Amazon, possibly to bestseller status. That's going to help more people find out about it, be moved to learn more about nuclear issues through my experience of learning about them, and hopefully some of them will be moved enough to join you in taking action. Be aware that Amazon adds up the purchase numbers on a 24-hour basis and wipes the slate clean when that 24 hours is over. It starts at 12.01 a.m. Pacific time. So if you're anywhere else in the world and you want to buy the book, find out what time zone differences are before you buy. Japan in particular is on the other side of the dateline from us here, so don't jump the gun or you lose out on being counted in the launch day totals. Every purchase that day will help support the book's future and hopefully the future of our movement. One other thing. A while back, I announced the setup of an advanced purchase system, but I made some mistakes with it. Digital, you know. Now, if you pre-ordered a book, it has already been shipped and you will have received an email telling you that. But if you haven't received an email confirmation of shipping, you are not charged and unfortunately the order was lost. My apologies for any inconvenience this may have caused you. And I do hope it won't stop you from moving forward to place those orders to buy the book this Thursday. Yes, I glow in the dark, one mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. Available on Thursday, August 16, 2018. And I will be on Facebook all day, keeping you posted on how it's going. Yeehaw, and thank you for your support. Here's this week's special feature. A tremendous amount of information has surfaced in the past two weeks about some really bad things happening at San Onofre regarding the handling of its nuclear waste. We touched upon this story for last week's show, and this week, as promised, we're giving it full focus, including all of the most recent developments. First, we hear from Gregory Yasko, former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In an interview he gave to KPBS in San Francisco on August 2nd, Yasko was asked about the likelihood of the canisters filled with highly radioactive spent fuel from San Onofre's reactors ever being moved to either interim or permanent storage elsewhere in the country. Quite frankly, once they get loaded, I don't see them ever taking those canisters out of there. Realistically, they're not going to move them out. Uh, so those permits will be extended, the operational period will be extended repeatedly, and the, you will have a de facto kind of burial site there. What does he think the genuine policy is for radioactive waste storage within the nuclear industry and at Southern California Edison's San Onofre? Very quickly, people came to this conclusion that the way you solve this problem is you find a place where you can bury it. It's literally called bury and forget, right? You bury the waste, you forget about it. As to the root of the problem, which is getting the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to fulfill their mandate to protect people and the environment, former NRC Chair Yasko said. Over years, they're at the top of the agency, the political appointees, people like me, um, that you've tended to have 
individuals appointed in the, those top positions in the agency, the commission itself, um, who have, have had more of a focus on the industry than they have on, on the public. And I think that's unfortunate, and you know, it's, I think that's where the focus is. And as for the best steps for Southern California Edison to take right now at San Onofre? I think the first thing that I think they should do right now is stop loading gas. That was the former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Gregory Yasko, in an interview with Allison St. John of KPBS News in San Francisco. Based on the firestorm of reaction to Yasko's widely publicized comments, I booked an interview with Charles Langley and Nina Babiars of Public Watchdogs, a nonprofit which has worked closely on San Onofre issues. They were previously featured on Nuclear Hot Seat number 364 from June 12 of this year. But between the time when I scheduled the interview and the time that we spoke, the story had shifted suddenly and dramatically. Based on an unexpected speaker at the California Public Utilities, the CPU, community engagement meeting last Thursday. We will hear a number of voices in this story, but start out by talking with these two public watchdogs. Charles Langley and Nina Babiars, so good of you to come back and be with us at Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank Glad you. Glad to be here. We've had quite the week to 10 days dealing with San Onofre, and let's follow this the way the events have been playing out. About a week ago, former Nuclear Regulatory Commission Chair Gregory Yasko, in an interview with KPBS Radio in San Francisco, said of the so-called spent fuel rods that are being taken out of the fuel pools at San Onofre and put into dry cask for storage. He said, once they, meaning Southern California Edison, unloads it, I don't see them taking the fuel out of it. In other words, that it's going to be stuck there and that there's no way to move it to safer storage. What was he referring to and what has been the, you should pardon the word, fallout from his comments? Part of the problem is, is they don't know how to remove these cans from the silos that they put them in. And they're in their 18 foot tall cans in like a 23 foot silo. And they haven't quote unquote invented a way to remove these things uh, safely. And when you say they, you're referring to Southern California Edison? Yes. And the other problem with the canisters is they don't have a way to inspect them or even monitor them. They don't even have radiation monitors inside the can, you know? And one of the things that we've been doing is really trying to promote real-time radiation monitoring at San Onofre, and the technology for that is very inexpensive. We've been able to get monitors from safecast.org, you're probably familiar with them, that are capable of uploading real-time radiation readings from anywhere on the planet to a satellite and a website. We'd like to see that happen at San Onofre. In March, Edison had buried four of the cans, and on the fifth can, they found a broken bolt. It was not a little thing. But Edison in a public meeting is who validated that they have no they don't have the technology available to remove those cans from the ground. That question was posed directly to the vice president of Southern California Edison, Tom Palmisano, by David Victor. Well, why don't you just pull the cans out of the ground if you if they're questionable? That questionable, and uh, he indicated they don't have the way. They don't have the technology in order to do that. And David Victor is a, a real nuclear booster, you know, kind of a nuke hugger. 
and he looked, it looked like somebody had shot his dog when he said that. I mean, if you go back and watch the video, I think it was a very sobering moment for him and one of- Realization. <laughs> yes. So with former Chairman Yasko's comments, which didn't address exactly the same part of the issue, but was more about the regulatory process and how the problem could get kicked down the road and how Edison could get themselves off the hook forever even needing to move it. When that came out, what was the response among the community that's been following this issue so closely? You know, my concern, and this is what happened with TEPCO at Fukushima, is they made a legal claim known as bona vacantia, which means an ownerless property for whom no one is responsible. And this is the fear, is that once Edison gets its last, the 72nd can into the ground, they're basically going to clap their hands together and dust them off and walk away. The permit they've got there is only for 20 years, but it's renewable for almost 300 years. So the fear, the very real fear among the advocacy community is that once these things are in the ground, they're going to be on the beach for 300 years, which is a big problem because the geologists say the beach won't even be there in 100 years due to sea level rise and beach erosion. Edison, you know, has been deceptive on in many levels of this issue. We're in this situation in the first place because they were deceptive in indicating that they were going to replace the old generators with a like for like. That's not what they did at all. They installed new technology. They removed safety features in order to have more room to put more tubes to generate more electricity. And it was that flawed design that gave us the radiation leak that forced the plant to close so abruptly. And it was also that leak that Edison withheld from the public for 17 days. So, you know, they were deceptive in the replacement itself. And then when they had a problem, they withheld the information with regard to a radiation leak from the public that was being exposed for 17 days. So I bring that up because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that's part and parcel of what Charles was talking about has given Edison a pass to play on the honor system, and they can't be trusted to play on the honor system. Now we've got a situation that's forced upon us because of their deception, and we're having additional design flaws, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is just not doing its job. I mean, they're being paid to do their job. They're not doing their job. The Department of Energy has been paid billions of dollars to find a national repository. Over 40 years and over $40 billion, they've not done their job. So it's a multifaceted issue of responsibility and liability. And Edison and the NRC and Department of Energy have all absolved themselves from the responsibility that they're paid to do this work for us. Let's take a look at the hearing that took place just a few days ago at the California Lands Commission. They were holding hearings in Oceanside on a draft environmental impact report on Southern California Edison's burying the waste in these thin wall containers, only five-eighths of an inch thick, next to the Pacific Ocean and just a little bit above mean tide level, meaning that the bottom of the containers could easily come into contact with corrosive salt water. It seems like the Lands Commission is looking into the environmental issues a little bit late, 
considering how many of these canisters, I believe there are more than 20 of them, filled with high-level radioactive waste have already been buried next to the beach and, as we've said, cannot be taken out. What was the stated purpose of that kind of hearing and what were they expecting to be able to accomplish with it? Well, we, we got an update from Edison. There are 29 of the 70 plus cans that are in the ground. That's their validated update as of Thursday night. And I just want to provide a little bit of clarity with regard to the California State Lands Commission Environmental Impact Report. It is the last report that Edison has to have approved by State Lands Commission in order to get the last permit that they need not to bury the fuel. They already have that permit. That's why they're already in the process of burying the fuel. This permit is to take down the domes, to demolish the rest of the buildings that are full of radioactive waste that's outlined in this report. They're going to be demolishing all of those buildings that are on the site. So they already have the permit in 2015 from the Coastal Commission to bury the waste. This is the report, the environmental report. They have to have approved by the State Lands Commission in order to get the permit to start the demolition of all the rest of the buildings in the final decommissioning. And so there are 14 areas of concern that impact the public's environmental health, air quality, hydrology, transportation, the list goes on and on. And, you know, Charles will be able to tell you about how woefully inadequate it is. And part of what they are planning to demolish are the spent fuel pools, meaning that even if there is some way to extract the rods in an emergency, that there would be no place to put them. That's right. They're going to get rid of the spent fuel pools. They don't have a hot cell anywhere on the property. And what they're claiming is, is that if there is a leak or a problem, that all they have to do is put it inside a transport cask and everything will be okay. The problem is this is hot nuclear fuel and a transport cask isn't designed to enable and facilitate convection air current cooling, which is the way these dry casks, they call them, operate. They're supposed to cool themselves by airflow. So you can't put them inside another canister and expect them to operate well and and stay cool because it's hot nuclear waste. You know, in nuclear terms, the word bombshell is not one that is readily used or encouraged to be used, but that is indeed what happened on Thursday night when David Frisch walked up to the microphone to speak. Note that the official live stream video of the CPU meeting has a series of dropouts, which happen at exactly the place where David Fritsch began saying some damning information about what happened on site at San Onofre. And the video shut off for 30 seconds due to what's being called a bad battery. But there were two cell phone audios taken by attendees who recognized that something big was in the process of happening and captured the missing moments. The following audio is pieced together from these various sources, so if you hear variances in sound quality, that's why. Also, know that after three minutes, when the moderator attempted to cut David Frisch off just as he was sharing crucial information, the audience demanded he be allowed to continue and the moderator was forced to back down. I've left everything intact on the audio, and it plays out as it happened. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Fritsch. I'm uh, a worker on the ISFACI project. I work on the spent fuel. I worked as a 
F-R-I-T-C-H. Um, I do industrial safety, so OSHA stuff, not nuclear stuff, but I'm out there. Um, and uh, I may not have a job back tomorrow, for what I'm about to say, but that's fine. Because uh, I made a, a promise to my daughter that if no one else talked about what happened on Friday, I would. <clears throat> about 12.30, August 3rd, we're downloading. The canister didn't download, but the rigging came all the way down. There were gross errors on the part of two, of two, two individuals, the operator and the rigger. Uh, that are inexplicable. Um, so what we have is, is a canister that could have fallen 18 feet. <clears throat> it's a bad day. That happened. And you haven't heard about it. And that's not right. My friend here is right. Public safety should be first. And I've been around nuclear for many years. It's not. Behind that gate, it's not. Here's a few things that I've observed in the three months I've been here. Squeak, um, the safety conscious work environment where people are constantly uh, given um, encouragement to raise concerns. It's not repeatedly or even, I've never even received squeak training since I've been on site. That's not standard for a nuclear site. Um, operational experience is not shared. That problem had occurred before, but it wasn't shared with the crew that was working. <clears throat> We're undermanned. We don't have the, 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 the proper personnel to get things done safely. And certainly under-trained. Uh, many of the experienced supervisors, the, what we call uh, CLSs, cast load supervisors, once they understand the project and how everything works, are often sent away. And we get new ones. They don't understand as well as, as even the craft, basic construction craft. A lot of them that haven't been around nuclear before <clears throat> are performing these tasks. Not technicians, not highly trained, not, not thorough briefs. Um, this is an engineering problem. What happened is um, inside of that cask, there is a guide ring at four feet down and it's to guide that canister down correctly to be centered in the system. Well, it actually caught that. And from what I understand, it was hanging by about a quarter inch. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so, I'm not trying to cut him off, right? He stopped. So, okay. For the time, so I thank him for his comments. Sure, sure. I, I just have a few. Uh, yes, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, obviously the point is uh, clear. Um, as people said, Edison's not forthright about what's going on. I'm sure they'll tell you that they were going to bring this out once it was analyzed, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure they've been preparing what they would answer if it comes out. Um, and I came here tonight to see if this event would be shared with the community. And I was, I was disappointed to see that it was not. And I want to um, thank the, the community of San Clemente. It's a beautiful, wonderful community with amazing people. You've been great to me. My family's with, here with me for the month. Um, and unless Edison and Holtec commit to defining success on this project as safety, and I'm, I'm not talking about any of the, really the concerns that were voiced today, I'm just talking about downloading, getting the, the fuel out of the building safely. Um, and, 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 and are we going to address what would have happened to that canister if it would have fallen, even if the shell wasn't penetrated, 
now? Will, will, will they take it in a repository site? Um, but the question is, will, will Edison and Holtec commit to defining success primarily in terms of nuclear safety? And there will, be, will there be transparency, commitment to safety, and the financial commitment to make sure that it's done successfully. That was San Onofre Osho worker and hero, David Fritch. He was speaking on August 9th to the California Public Utilities Commission Community Engagement Panel. Back to the interview with Charles Langley and Nina Babiars. Now, after he revealed the near miss of an accident, a thin-walled canister made out of 5 eighths inch of stainless steel with a Chernobyl's worth of radiation inside just missed falling 18 feet. What was the response in the room, both from those sitting on the panel and the citizens attending? It was absolute silence once he started talking. Because you could almost hear the cockroaches crawling around in the walls. It was so quiet. And the response itself, everyone was so stunned, including the people on the panel, that I don't think they really knew how to react. Although I do think the chief nuclear officer for Southern California Edison, Tom Palmasano, had been briefed on how to handle this. And one of the people in the audience, Gene Stone, who's with a group called Rose, walked up to the microphone and addressed the panel. They didn't want him to do it and said, look, are you going to fire this man for stepping up and doing the right thing and telling the truth? And he extracted a promise from Southern California Edison that they would not do that. So that's a huge relief. And I've been in contact with this man a few times by telephone and through email. And he's a very principled individual. He's not interested in drawing attention to himself. He's not interested in being a public whistleblower. He's just a person with a great deal of conscience and moral character who decided that this information had to be brought out to the public because Edison was suppressing it. San Onofre had the worst safety record in the United States before they even closed the plant. So these are this is the same team that's running this charade. But Tom Palmasano had the front end of the entire meeting agenda with PowerPoints like he always does that go through and, and drone on and on. And in March, when they had this issue of the broken bolts, he had to reveal that in this public meeting, you know, one of these community enragement panel meetings that transpired yeah. in March. And he could have done that at this meeting, but he didn't. Yeah, and what, what, what Nina's referring to is the, they have defective canisters filled with nuclear waste with bolts that are actually breaking on the inside with the assembly that holds the fuel assemblies. It's like an egg crate assembly, a very serious issue. Now we have another huge safety issue where a canister that would weigh somewhere between 38,000 pounds and 110,000 pounds is about 20 feet tall, dropped, we don't know if it was inches or feet, and then hung on a quarter inch steel lip inside the silo and could have fallen another 18 feet if it hadn't been stopped by the liner inside these, these silos where they're burying these things. It's a really terrifying event because if there's a, even if there's a hairline fracture in one of these canisters, it's going to release millions and millions of curies of radiation. 
I just want to finish one point regarding Mr. Palmasano because, you know, we've got him quoted and also in the San Diego Union Tribune this morning talking about, you know, just like they always do, Edison always minimizes, minimizes, minimizes. And so David Victor and Palmasano are minimizing this as just a workplace issue. Well, yep. let's face it, if it was a, just a workplace issue, he would have had it in his PowerPoint presentation at the beginning of the meeting and saying, hey, we had a little workplace issue, we got it resolved, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't do that either. So they can't have it both ways. That's exactly what they want. They want to have it both ways. They can't have it both ways. That's one of the things I found fascinating in looking at the live stream recording, that in the moment, Palmasano, who is Edison's chief nuclear officer, had all his talking points lined up and prepared. It did not sound like an improv, which would imply that he knew all about this near accident, even though Edison didn't cop to it until after David Frisch blew the whistle. And David Frisch was spot on with his analysis of how Edison would respond to what he had to say. Because only after this brave and very nervous man spoke out did Tom Palmasano, Chief Nuclear Officer of Southern California Edison, address the very real near-miss with disaster at San Onofre. While I never like to put a pro-nuker on this show, I think it's important to hear what Palmasano said and how he said it. Pay attention to the stammering repetition of talking points, which could be nervousness, Palmasano in the past has been seen to break out in huge facial twitches when pressed in a public meeting with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on the steam generator issues at San Onofre before permanent shutdown was announced. But it's also this repetition of talking points. It's also an NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming Technique, that serves to implant those talking points in the minds of listeners through repetition. He also moves quickly into an offer to provide a letter and graphs to explain everything, with no indecision or lack of clarity as to the fact that this could be done by SCE as a response. Tom Palmasano. The two people involved did not recognize that the canister they were lowering hung up. A serious near miss, if you will, in terms of a rigging issue. It's got to be recognized, lifted off, the cranes move slightly and recentered. That's what has to happen. That's what did not happen. In, a, in an effective manner on Friday. So it's an industrial safety issue. It's an industrial safety issue. There was no risk to spend fuel, no risk to the public. Uh, it was a rigging issue that leads to an industrial safety issue. It was unacceptable. No risk to the spend, spend fuel or the public, no risk to the workers involved, an error on the part of the crew. And I'll be glad to provide more detail. And I'll be glad to detail more of that in writing. And I'll, I'll bring a graphic next time. And what I'll do is I'll write a letter circulate publicly so you have the facts. Southern California Edison's chief nuclear officer, Tom Palmasano. Nina Babiars had an immediate reaction when she heard what Palmasano said. That was as scary to me, as frightening to me. It was so readily apparent to make that observation as it was happening. And it was as frightening as the news that we got from the whistleblower because that just showed me how polished how smooth, how prepared he was to withhold yeah. that information from the public and, once again. And the PR blitz is on. They've all been briefed. David Victor was on KPBS, our local public radio station today, talking about how, well, an 18-foot drop is nothing. 
it really isn't anything risky at all. I mean, I, the arrogance and the problem is, is he's a respected college professor here locally, and he's really purveying extremely deceptive information and trying to assuage people that this was really nothing and glossing it over. And they're doing a very good job. The media is spooning it up like blueberry cobbler. That's one of the things that really smacked me upside the head when I was reading today's story in the San Diego Union Tribune, because it was like they were saying, oh, it's just this little problem at San Onofre, nothing big, which to me echoes my experience at Three Mile Island, where, oh, it was just a little problem down at the end plant, nobody died, yada, yada. Yeah, so here's the headline on the front page, which it should have been, nuclear near-miss disaster. And instead, it's nuclear plant incident spurs measures. I mean, if I ever saw a headline that said, don't read me because this is another boring Edison story, that's it. It's a real problem. I'd like to point out something else that's quite obvious. Look at the headline. Look above the headline. What section of the paper is this only in? It's It's only in the business section. section. This should have been on the front page of the San Diego Union Tribune indicating that the public safety is being jeopardized. And this needs to go on the front page of the paper. So somebody that might be listening needs to pick up the phone that may know the new owner of the LA Times and give him a heads up that, you know what? I I know he is very interested in making sure that news like this gets out to the community. This needs to be on the front page of the paper so that people the public is aware. And, the and public is aware. That's why we're grateful to alternative media like Nuclear Hot Seat, where we can actually talk about this stuff. I was quoted in that article, but it, it was a very weak quote. It didn't really emphasize the level of alarm and concern that's in the community about this cask drop. I mean, that is a serious, serious problem. The NRC worries about a canister dropping just a couple of inches. And wrap your head around this one. There was no media at this meeting on Thursday night other than a representative from one of the local coastal neighborhood community papers. There was no media that witnessed the video that was taken was by all of us that were in the room to witness the whistleblower's bombshell. And it also looked like it was pretty sparsely attended, so there weren't that many people there to bear witness, though we do have some very good video on that. Let me point out a reason why, and these meetings have been going on for, what, four years that you've been attending. Edison physically places these meetings so out of reach for the public's any public access or public transportation. And I'll give you a prime example. There's a woman up in Los Angeles. Her name is Daryl. She comes to all of these meetings. She left Los Angeles at 7.58 in the morning for a 5.30 meeting because it took her that long to get by train from Los Angeles to San Clemente and then to get transportation inland that there was there was no public transportation to make a 5:30 p.m. meeting if that'll put it in perspective and they've done it repeatedly they've placed these meetings so that if the public was interested they really have to go out of their way to even get to them it's disgusting Another point I want to make about what I have personally witnessed at all of the Southern California Edison-involved meetings regarding San Onofre 
is their manipulation of the discourse by controlling access to what's being said, who can say it, and they're shouting down or over-talking of members of the advocacy community who try to call them out when they catch these so-called experts on their lies. Donna Gilmore of SanOnofreSafety.org is a regular source on San Onofre thin canister issues for Nuclear Hot Seat. She was in attendance at the CPU meeting and tried to stop the flow of misleading or deceitful SCE talking points that were coming from the podium. Here's what that sounded like, starting with Tom Palmisano. We're in compliance today. What Areva is doing on one of the older licenses for our older system is cleaning up some of these requirements that the NRC no longer insists upon. I think that, that's where the comment came from. That is why, Tom. Excuse that me. Was just, stop stop lying, please. Stop please, lying. Please, please. No, please. license, item eight on your certificate of approval requires the ability to unload back in the pool, that license is active now. That yes, is that, not I the truth. That. I agree with that. And that's what Arriba's You're going to go and get an exemption after you get the da, fuel out of the pool. Da, that's your plan. Let me suggest that there's a constructive well, way. Well, you know, when we have can, no opportunity. Let me suggest that there's a constructive it. way to handle this, which is why don't you send me a letter with that's the, your because concerns about Because then the people here are not going to know the truth. Well, then then we'll discuss it publicly. We'll discuss it publicly. And they won't be here next and, time. Well, actually, let me make a proposal. And the proposal was that there be another meeting and another discussion and somewhere down the road, etc. Typical of Edison, kick it down the road and get out of the situation as it exists when someone calls them on their lies and manipulations. That was Donna Gilmore of SantaNofreSafety.org speaking truth to power, or at least trying to. Let's get back to the interview where we talk about the then-upcoming events of Sunday, August 12th. I know that there's going to be a meeting tonight, a protest, that it's taking some kind of form, but it's definitely in reaction to these latest revelations. What is on the boards, what's being planned, and what do you hope will come out of it? Well, it was very hastily convened by Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green, And I I think what Gary is envisioning and what it's evolved into is sort of a public town square. And if there's enough people there, we may march and may hold up a little bit of traffic. We'll see what happens and how big the crowd is. The last time we did this, there were a, a couple hundred people out there and many of them came from as far away as LA and Southern San Diego County. And that, that's a, a pretty good distance to travel here in Southern California. Yeah, especially in traffic. You know, um, Gary Hedrick with San Clemente Green is has a long history with regard to San Onofre. He was one of the folks that worked collaboratively with several others to get the plant closed when we had the radiation leak in, in 2012 in order to get the plant closed. I mean, Edison and everything that we're talking about they were actually going to try to restart those generators that were leaking radiation. So, you know, I want your audience to be aware that Gary and others got that plant closed. Otherwise, we might be working on a different situation here today. But he's also engaged some of the young people there in San Clemente. There's a couple of other groups that have their grassroots in the high school because they, these young people know that they're going to inherit this issue 20, 30 years ago if they're lucky enough for nothing to have happened. They're going to be the ones 
So we have an 18-year-old gentleman by the name of Jackson Hinkle who is running for city council in San Clemente. You got to keep in mind, you know, San Clemente, San Juan Capistrano, this is breathing down their throats. They're three, four miles away from from this. Yeah, and Jackson's campaign posters show guys in hazmat suits in front of the twin domes at San Onofre. I'm aware of him and I've been wanting to interview him. It's just that the nuclear news cycle keeps popping up with stories this big and this intense. You know, from a particular perspective, which I have started to take, in essence, what is happening is Southern California Edison is burying dirty bombs, radiation containing dirty bombs on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, just above the water level. They're only five eighths of an inch thick. They're known to corrode. They're only approved for 20 or 25 years by the NRC, and they're going to be radioactive for 24,000 years half-life. It strikes me that if somebody was an enemy of the United States, a terrorist group that wanted to take out the state of California, and our economy, and our ecology, and our agriculture. I mean, San Onofre is only 42 miles from Disneyland. That then Southern California Edison and Holtec, the manufacturers behind this, could be brought up on federal charges. Yeah, I wish our board member, William Weigel, was here today to talk to you about this and talk to your audience because he's a Navy JAG and he's very concerned having a military background of what could happen at San Onofre because it's a military target. He believes that because that facility isn't hardened, which I guess is the military term for well defended, you know, with, with guards and weapons and walls and barriers, that it's vulnerable to a terrorist attack and it's a strategic military target. And he believes it's a violation of international law to even put that nuclear waste dump there. And it's a violation of the rules of war. Bill Weigel is one of our board members of Public Watchdogs. He's actually a retired Air Force JAG. Oh, sorry. Not only is that a point of uh, vulnerability, but it, you know, once again, we've got a situation where we're paying billions of dollars over decades of time to be protected. And so, you know, Bill's contention is that the very people that are, you know, their mission is to protect the public is really helping to put the public at risk in being a target of what you described. I realize that your audience is, it must be very well informed, Levy. If they listen to the show, they are. <laughs> I do want to take a couple steps back and emphasize something for your audience because I know they are so well informed. It's with regard to the broken bolts that were revealed themselves in March. Edison was then allowed to resume burial with 30 cans that do not have that quote-unquote improved manufacturing process. And I just want to let your audience know that the reason that that is such a big deal is that it's not just simply a broken bolt. It was that those bolts are helping to suspend those cans so that the helium can circulate around them to cool the radioactive waste. And so when you have a broken bolt and those cans either drop to the ground or impair that circulation, 
That's what we're talking about when we're talking about these broken bolts. And so when that incident occurred, yet again, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had them cease and desist and then enabled Edison to resume burial without the improved manufacturing process. So those 29 cans that we have in the ground you take 29 minus four that were in the ground with that improved manufacturing process, and you've got 25 cans in the ground that don't have the improved manufacturing process. So once again, it was either something that was needed and necessary because the original de design was deficient and they had to make this improvement, but when they had a design flaw and a problem and a break of one of those bolts, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had them proceed with 30 cans that don't have that improved manufacturing process. So again, Edison wants it both ways. And Public Watchdogs is just one of many organizations forcing these issues to the surface because the public has a right to know. Obviously, we're going to continue to follow this story because it's not going away anytime soon. Certainly with plutonium having a half-life of 24,000 years, we've got a little bit of time in the future to deal with this. Anything else? People need to start telling every single buddy that they know. We need to work collaboratively with everybody that's listening to start telling this story, even if it's you know the parts that you're aware of and you don't have all the information. You can go to our website at www.publicwatchdogs.org and many others. There's a, quite a bit of information that's free to the public. We need to increase the public's awareness because what I'd like to leave your audience with is that this is not a little local Southern California regional problem. If Edison gets away with doing this on the most pristine beach that you can imagine, and it's absolutely, as Charles would say, heartbreakingly beautiful, on two earthquake faults in a tsunami inundation zone in the middle of not only millions of Southern California residents, but as you pointed out, Orange County alone gets almost 100 million tourists from all over the world and between San Diego and Orange County, about 50 million apiece a year. So you've got 100 million people between the two counties coming in here to appreciate the beauty of Southern California, all that are uninformed and vulnerable. And so if Edison gets away with doing this here, we've got 104 of these across the country. So I can't imagine that there's anybody listening in the United States that is not gonna be impacted because if Edison gets away with doing this here, they're gonna do it anywhere they want. Well, clearly we're going to be continuing to follow this story very closely as it continues to evolve, and it's been doing so at an amazing pace. I want to thank the two of you, Charles Langley, Nina Babiars, yes. and uh, give my regards to Gary Hedrick and Lori Hedrick, who I know will be there tonight, and probably Gene Stone as well, of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment. These are all long-term, hardworking activists, and you're all working in community with each other, and know that Nuclear Hot Seat will be with you every step of the way. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Charles Langley and Nina Babiars of Public Watchdogs. The group is now engaged in raising funds for a court order to stop Southern California Edison's burial of the nuclear waste on the beach at San Onofre State Beach Park. 
The group has until Thursday morning, August 16, to build a legal war chest. When they raise the first $50,000, their attorneys will immediately begin drafting the case for an emergency injunction to stop the burial of the nuclear waste. In the first 83 hours of this campaign, they have raised almost $16,000. You can learn more and donate any amount by going to publicwatchdogs.org. Activist shout-outs! Carl Grossman has a great new article in counterpunch.org on turning space into a war zone. This is about Space Force and nukes in space. And Gene Stone of Residents Organized for Safe Environment has introduced a new petition for independent real-time radiation monitoring at San Onofre. And it will be addressed to Governor Brown and California state legislators, saying, I support a law for independent real-time radiation monitoring at California nuclear waste sites. I'll have links up to both of those on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 373. Here's today's final thought. We've been talking about San Onofre in a particular way throughout this program, but as is the policy at Nuclear Hot Seat, let's look at it from a different perspective. To review, you've already heard that those thin canisters, those tin cans, are made of only 5 eighths inch thick stainless steel, a material which is known to corrode and crack in a seawater environment, and each of which contains a Chernobyl's worth of radiation. These canisters cannot be monitored, examined for cracks, or removed. So why are they being buried at San Onofre, directly on the beach, only a few feet from the Pacific Ocean, with the base of these thin cans only a few feet above the average high tide level? They're subject to storm surges, morning marine layer, and a tsunami zone within five miles of a major earthquake fault. What are they doing there? These Holtec casks are known to crack within 20 years and are only approved for use by the NRC for 25 years when the contents are known to be deadly for a half-life of 24,000 years. What are we, the taxpayers, supposed to do as of 2043? If a political group buried a dirty bomb, one that wouldn't explode but would disperse a tremendous amount of deadly radioactivity into the immediate environment, Wouldn't a group that did this be considered a terrorist organization? Then what are these Holtec canisters except a series of dirty bombs mining the coast of Southern California with enough radioactive material that if even one fails, it will equal Chernobyl in its released radioactivity? Now, regarding Chernobyl, even 32 years after that reactor exploded and spewed radiation into the Ukrainian environment, it requires a 50-mile exclusion zone around it, an area turned back to wildlife with the only people allowed there being those who have some direct business with the reactor. What would a 50-mile radiation evacuation zone do to Southern California? Think real estate values and the resulting loss of tax base. How about Camp Pendleton, the Port of Long Beach, Hollywood, for crying out loud, Disneyland, which is only 42 miles away? What would an irreversible, unfixable leak of radiation at San Onofre do to the economy of California, currently the fifth largest economy in the world? 
to the 8 million people who live within 50 miles and those beyond who will surely want to get out of Dodge as well. So with this kind of impact from a single canister crack and leak at San Onofre, let alone the 29 canisters, four of which we already know have flaws that cannot be fixed, 29 canisters currently buried in place with no exit strategy and 44 others still to come, with that kind of devastation possible, tell me how does that not make Holtec and Southern California Edison terrorist organizations? Each of these canisters is a bomb, perhaps with a really long fuse, with years, maybe even decades, before it would go off. But who would be so arrogant as to assume that nothing bad will ever happen there, when, since the loading of fuel began earlier this year, there have already been the four defective canisters, a broken bolt, and now a near miss with loading a can into its container canister. They can't even put a round peg in a round hole without endangering us all. So I repeat, how does this behavior not make Holtec International and Southern California Edison and even our own Nuclear Regulatory Commission complicit in a terrorist conspiracy to take out Southern California? It's a plan more sure to be successful at destroying this great state than would be the proposal to split it into three states. And even if it's not those companies' publicly stated intention, if or when something drastic goes wrong at San Onofre, that would be the result. No radical nutball conspiracy group need do anything to take us out except sit back and pass the popcorn. It is outrageous that our awareness of a near-miss nuclear catastrophe was dependent upon the conscience of a good man who made a promise to his daughter to tell the public this truth and kept that promise. We cannot allow the dangers at San Onofre to be gaslighted and mansplained away by millionaire corporate flunkies and manipulators who we've already caught in repeated nuclear lies through the years. So please, Help public watchdogs raise that $50,000 if you can and tell everyone you know about this outrage on this beach, this potential crime against humanity with Southern California as ground zero. As today's guests pointed out, this is not just a Southern California issue. If Holtec and SCE and the NRC get away with this callous, dangerous behavior at San Onofre, before long, no matter where you live, you'll undoubtedly be facing the same problem at your own local nuclear reactor, at which point, whatever deity you believe in, may he, she, or it save us all. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 14, 2018. Special thanks to Mary Fish up in Canada for her help with the audio grabs. Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green for his cell phone audio of David Frisch, and all the San Onofre activists, whether mentioned by name on this particular show or not. You can find Nuclear Hot Seat and our programs in a number of places. On the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page, at NuclearHotSeat.com, of course, on iTunes, and if you would like to not have to hunt around for it and get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Go to the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down to the yellow box, 
you may have to scroll a while if it's a tablet or a smartphone, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world or in your own backyard, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really be grateful for your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that my book, my nuclear memoir, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat goes live as of Thursday, August 16, at one minute after midnight Pacific time. You can buy it on Amazon on that first day and be part of the international celebration that helps bring my book, the nuclear issues that it addresses, and all of the different ways that the nuclear industry manipulates us into paying no attention to its dirty technology behind the curtain to the attention of the world. It's a dirty job, but somebody besides Dr. Helen Caldicott and all the activists who've been working on this for decades before me has got to do it. And, oh yes, don't forget to tell people all about what's happening at San Onofre. Just utilize some of the horrifying little factoids that we've been able to share with you in the course of this program. And if what's been on this show today doesn't strike you as a nuclear wake-up call, I don't know what will be. So from this point forward, you are cordially invited to not go back to sleep. Because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.